Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stupski, Brad King, Alex Welsh, and Eric Hibbs. Joining the Gearheads for a very special episode 20 is Hot Rod Designer, Builder, and All-Around Nice Guy, Chip Foose. <laughs> How it works. All right. Well, hey, uh, that all said, um, welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Eric. And, uh, you know, uh, tonight in lieu of doing our usual podcast, uh, I've decided that I would like to read to you all a, uh, a selection from my redacted overhaul and fan fiction. Uh, it, it's, it's erotica based and I refer to this one as eat a bag of chips. <laughs> and I'm not even going to bother. And I'm, I'm not going to bother. Oh, shit. Uh, but with us tonight is Mr. Chip Foose. Hello, Chip. Thank you for the introduction like that. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> oh my gosh. So how the heck are you, sir? I'm fantastic. Awesome. Went out and picked up a Jaguar from Luke DeLay, who is uh, Marcel's son. We, uh, we're doing this E-type and he's metal shaped, and he did those pieces for us, and we just brought it back so I can get back to work on that here in the shop. Outstanding, man. I mean, you are probably the busiest human being on the planet, so it, it goes without saying, you know, if we even ask you to make a list of the things you're working on, well, that could probably fill the whole episode. So why don't we start there? Let's <laughs> Well, I'm not as busy as I used to be when we were filming. It's uh, a lot easier, and I spend a lot more time with my family, which is nice. Excellent. So speaking of family, I mean, some people are born with a genetic predisposition to become like a, a doctor or a lawyer. You know, they just become a natural in their field. For you, you seem to have been born with some kind of a genetic marker for hot rod, which... Thinking back on that now sounds kind of like something you might ask Ron Jeremy. Um, <laughs> I, I guess. The, the, uh, speaking the, the, of hot rods, <laughs> here might be. How did how did you know you were going to be into cars? Was was this was this a thing from birth, or did you kind of just you know come into w- it through the I family? Was... You know, I don't really remember being introduced to cars. I was kind of born into this with my, my father. I don't remember being introduced to the automotive industry. It's more like I was born into it. I, I feel that my my career is an extension of my father's. Uh, at the age of three years old, my father was running uh, Gene Winfield's shop in Arizona called AMT, and, which was uh, American Model Toys. But they ran a full-size shop where they built the real cars, and then those got into the model kits. And I would go to the shop with my dad on the, on the weekends at – three years old and I could watch him building these cars and, and also the crew cause they worked Saturdays and Sundays too sometimes. But, uh, I would go down there and then, you know, 
few months later, the cars that he was finishing were coming out in plastic model kits. So I was able to build those at home and also metallic hot wheels of the cars that they were building as well. So as a little kid, I got to watch my dad build a car. I got to duplicate that in a scale model kit at home or carry around a hot wheel in my pocket. And awesome. my career today is the same thing as the cars that Ravel as a model kit and uh, we're building the die cast and it's amazing. But, uh, you know, I'm still living the dream. Like I say, my career, I feel, is an extension of my father's. And it was amazing at the age of three going to this shop with him and watching him build these cars. And I remember the a la carte had come in, which, of course, was built by uh, But then they tore it all apart and measured everything and scaled it down and created the model kit. And then my, no, my dad repainted the finished. Then it was for sale. My dad actually $2,500. Didn't tell my mom right away, but then when she found out, she flipped out, and he had to sell it back to uh, AMT, and then it was sold again. But, you know, that car for for two weeks, my dad owned it, which was amazing. And I know that when Roy Brizio restored it for John Mumford, the paint job that was on it at that time was my dad's paint job. Which had all the way from, uh, I think that was 1968, he had redone it. 68 wow. or 69 is cool. when they redid it. Another long time. When my dad owned it, but... I, it, was, it was an amazing childhood. And then when my dad had his own shop up in Santa Barbara, which is where I was born and raised, I started going to this shop with him when I was seven years old. I'd like to say that I was helping him, but I know I destroyed a lot more than I actually helped in the beginning. But my dad, you know, was an amazing teacher, and he's my hero to this day. But he also had another designer that was coming in who had retired in uh, Ventura, California, just south of Santa Barbara, and that was Alex Trembulus. He was a big fan of my father's and he would come around. He would bring scale models and my dad or I started painting them later, but my dad was painting his models when I was just a kid. But when Alex came in and he brought his artwork, now Alex had worked for Auburn Duesenberg back in the 30s. He designed the Tucker. He was the head of the Thunderbird studio through the 60s for Ford Motor Company. He retired in uh, Ventura and he would hang out at my dad's shop. He would do drawings of the cars that my dad was doing and he would bring in these amazing sketches and when I saw his stuff, I thought, that's what I want to do. And he told me about Art Center College of Design, which is where I actually went. And uh, I have a degree in industrial design, you know, specializing in automotive. But uh, that's all because of my father and Alex is uh, where I got my start and how I was introduced to this. Wow. What a mentor. Too cool. Wow. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Great memories. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, made him clean up and, and put his little toys away. He was out in the street I when I was getting everything I can't set tell up. you how many wet paint jobs I stuck my finger in when I was a kid. <laughs> wow, that looks amazing. And I'd touch it, you because know, he originally didn't have a spray booth. He was painting things and then just walking into the other room. Right. I'd come in. You know, Mom might drop me off. I'd walk into the shop, and I'd go, wow, that's cool. Oops. Okay. <laughs> and, and the rule was, if I messed something up, to tell my dad about it right away because he didn't want to find it when it was too late. Now the customer's coming to pick it up. I remember he was doing a uh, Lamborghini Miura. He had painted, he had just done it candy root beer brown. This is in 1975 or 76. Candy root beer brown. We were color sanding and rubbing. It was all polished. Now we are reassembling it. And my father gave me a gallon can full of lacquer thinner with a rag, and he gave me all the door rubbers and the and the the rear latch, all the rubbers. 
to wipe those clean with the with the lacquer thinner before they would glue them back in. And then my mom showed up and she says, you got to go to the dentist. We got to go. So I left. We go to the dentist and I get back and my dad's in the office and he said, what'd you do with that wet lacquer thinner rag before you left for the dentist? Oh, no. Oh, I have no idea. No. Well, he walked me back there and I had just laid it right on the hood of the car. And now that wet lacquer thinner PNT 90 had melted into the candy root beer brown paint job that was already color sand and rubbed. And yeah, then I had to, I had to pull it out, feather it out and block it. And my dad went over it. But yeah, when I was nine was my first paint lesson. I remember my, my dad told me to go out to the back of the shop, which is where we used to throw all the uh, destroyed panels. And I grabbed a Volkswagen hood and brought it into the shop. And he said, okay, go ahead and straighten that out. So I hammered and dollied it and bondoed it and blocked it, got it in primer, and I ended up painting it pearl white. And he said, now do some graphics on it. So I did some flames and I did a couple stripes and uh, cleared it. And then I color sand and rubbed it and got it all done. And he said, now when you get it all done, come and find me. Now, I'm sure it was probably awful, but in my mind, what I remember, it was this beautiful, perfect Volkswagen hood that could have gone on any show Volkswagen if you finished the rest of it this way. <laughs> and I walked to the other room and I grabbed my dad where he was hammering dollying on a fender of a car. And I said, I got the hood all finished. Come look at it. So he walks over there and he's looking at the hood. He says, well, you did a nice job. And he still had the hammer and dolly in his hand. And he hauls back and he hits right in the middle of that hood, right in the graphics and everything with the hammer. He said, now fix that. And I remember I, I hammered and dollied it. I bonded it. I fixed it. And then I taped off a square. I had primered it and I taped off a square and I painted it white and I unmasked it. And there's a big white square. <laughs> and that's when he taught me how to blend everything and how to spot paint jobs. So, yeah, I've been painting since I was nine. Wow. wow. That's too painted. Yeah, I, at nine years old, if my dad did that, we would have gone the rounds. And I, <laughs> I would have got my butt kicked, but, you know, I wouldn't have let that slide. I would have let him know who was boss. It, it was a good lesson. It's better to do it on that than to do it on a car in the shop or the uh, Lamborghini with a lacquer thinner rag. In it. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to tell me you was going to throw some lacquer thinner on a rag and st stick it on the hood and say, come on, son, let's go to lunch. That was actually before I did that to the oh. Lamborghini. I think <laughs> oh. I was right or I was, when I did the lacquer thinner on the, that was about 12. So three years later I did that. Oh, wow. Not a good thing. Well, that, which that it makes sense. That's why he had you feather it out and fix it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> also the same year, is when my dad taught me how to drive. I used to ride around with him. The 56 pickup that I have now that was overhauled for me, the black one, uh -huh. when my dad drove that, that was his daily driver. And I used to ride next to him and I would airship because it was all stock, had the three on the tree. And I would ride next to my dad and I would pretend that I was pushing in the clutch and I was shifting the truck and letting the clutch out and hitting the throttle again. So at the age of 12 years old, it was a Friday afternoon that uh, my dad was going to teach me how to drive. Now, I had been working all that week on a Rolls-Royce that had come in because the Rolls had a couple door dings on the sides. So the Rolls had come in, and we had fixed those door dings and painted both sides of the car. It was being color sand and rubbed when I grabbed a primer gun out of the mixing room, and I'm walking behind the Rolls, and I hadn't fixed the cup of the primer gun properly to the gun, and the cup fell and hit the ground, and lacquer primer went all over the back of the Rolls-Royce. I tried to wipe it off, but it etched the paint. We ended up having to paint the back of the car as well, sides and the back. And we had it backed in in front of the uh, office. It was ready for the customer to come pick it up. And my dad says, uh, let's go for a driving lesson. 
So at 12 years old, I get in the truck, which is parked right next to the rolls, and I back the truck out, and we drive all around the airport property. And my dad said I did absolutely perfect. Never missed a shift, never chattered the clutch. I did everything properly. And we're coming back in to the shop, and he told me to park next to the rolls. Now, this is where it was difficult because at 12 years old, this is an all-stock truck, no power steering, no power brakes. But I've got, I've got my foot on the brake, and I'm using my body weight to turn the truck. And it's difficult to turn. So I'm pulling with all my weight while I've got my foot on the brake trying to turn the wheels. And my foot slips off the brake, and I nail the throttle, light up the rear tires, and I wow. ran right into the front of that rolls. Oh, that, was, that was another one. So, I mean, it goes on and on. I can tell you some of these stories. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my dad just looked at me. He says, well, you got three of them. Because when I hit the rolls, I pushed the rolls into a Porsche that was parked next to that. <laughs> and then we proceeded to immediately that night go look for parts for the truck. Because the truck was supposed to be at the uh, F-100 Nationals the following Friday. So then my dad and I ended up working all week and we rebuilt the whole front of that truck, got it painted and finished so that he could take it up to the nationals that weekend. Wow. So, yeah. so let this be a lesson, a lesson to the kids. If you want to be like chip, start destroying your dad's crap real early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully uh, your father's will be as uh, understanding as mine. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> my kids will be the first one to tell you that. <laughs> So as a nine-year-old and knowing how to paint, were you like the neighborhood bike customizer kid that everybody wanted you to spray their bikes? Well, when I was 12 years old, I actually had a bike shop on the side of my parents' house. And I would go to swap meets and garage sales and buy bikes. I would strip them down and hang all the parts on the, on the fence. I would throw the frame and forks and, and the chain guard in the back of my dad's truck. He would drive it to work. I would go to school. After school, I would ride my bike to work. And then I would paint that frame after five because I'd worked on customers' cars till five. And then my dad was always working late, so I would work late. I would paint these bikes, bring them back, and uh, reassemble the bikes. So I had finished bikes at the end of the uh, side yard. And when somebody wanted to come in and buy a bike, they'd walk in and see those or other parts, and I would put these bikes together. And one weekend, my dad comes to the side, side yard, and I had broken the fence in a couple places, putting nails in the fence so I could hang all the parts. He says, okay, that's it. No more bike shop. So I had a big sale and sold all the parts and all the bikes and uh, got rid of the bike shop. But, yeah, I've always been into bikes as well. Were you into certain bikes, certain types of bikes back then? Like, as kids, man, having a Schwinn, that was like the best of the bikes, you know, for a regular kid. Yeah, the kid. Schwinns are what everybody wanted. Yeah. And, uh, but, see, those were still brand new, so I couldn't find those. So it was a lot of Huffies and other stuff that uh, I was okay. getting cheap and trying to build. You know, I'd put cool paint jobs on them, so they'd want them because it was, you know, fun paint stuff. Or I would end up welding up the tank up front and do graphics on that and then sell them. Okay, I, what is the bike that's in the that's in the showroom by the by the desk up front there? It's on the far corner back there. Uh, that's a 1936 Elgin Bluebird. I've never seen one before. Yeah, oh, those, wow. that's that's a pretty rare yeah, bike. Okay, we got door noises here. Got a, got a door going down in the shop. We can wait. That's awesome. It's just like being there. <laughs> <laughs> I can so smell the bondo dust. The Elgin Bluebird's kind of all Art Deco, is it not? Yes, it yes. is. Yeah, Absolutely. extremely Art Deco. So I, I still so have bikes around here. I suspect it has a uh, cool bitch and foos design paint job on it. No, that... it's it's all restored. 
it's original paint, original color. I'm not original paint, but same original colors, but all redone and restored. Nice. That's cool. I, uh, I wonder, though, if there's a group of people out there now, especially knowing that you were out there building bikes as a kid, I just wonder if there's a group of people now who are, like, searching all over the place looking for bikes that you customized as a kid. <laughs> I would think those are all completely destroyed by now. How awesome would that be, though, find one of these? I know, I'm going to put one on Craigslist and be like, original Chip Foose design bicycle. Dude, this is going to be awesome. I just beat you to it. I just put a rainbow bright bike up on Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> I did that one. <laughs> the original, the original rainbow bright bike. <laughs> Remember the Yamaha M- uh, motocross yes. bikes? Yeah, yeah. some of those. I, I'd find those and I'd redo them, clean them up, give all the all the parts to the chrome shop. They'd redo all the chrome and I'd get it all back together and assemble it and sell them. Yep. I oh, probably was awesome. losing money, but I was having fun. Those were cool bikes. A friend of mine had one of those. He also had a bike called a Graco, which had a full suspension on it, even back in the day. The thing was a tank, but it was a really cool bike. Yeah. Yeah, those things weighed like 45 pounds, didn't they? They were heavy. (laughs) Yeah, you could go up any jump, you know, but... Yeah, wouldn't get much air. They landed so softly. Yeah. The bike got to the ground before you did because it yeah. was so Yeah, empty. you were the first one to the accident scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's, we so, should do a comparison between what you were doing out west with your bikes and then somewhere back east there's a guy who was like covering the seats with like alligator skin. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So Chip, do you still uh, are you still an avid bike collector or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've Right now, I'd say I probably have close to 35, 40 bikes. How cool. Yeah. Got some old stuff. Uh, got an 1884 Columbia high wheel, Columbia. And wow. do, you, do you know why they were designed that way with the big wheel up front and the little wheel in the back? It was run over the cow turds without falling down, wasn't it? That's before they invented the chain. <laughs> so the bigger like they can make idea that. better. Yeah. <laughs> the bigger they could get that front wheel, the faster they could go. So that's that's yeah. where that design came from. The next well, year, I great. also so that was a, 1884. I also have an 1885 Columbia Pope. It's a chainless bike, and uh, it's regular size wheels that we're familiar with, but they're 28 inch. But it was a shaft drive bike through the rear tube. And then I have a uh, I have an 1887 two speed shaft drive bike. And a bunch of other stuff, but a lot of also the uh, balloon tire bikes, well, I like those. And then, and then I'll design and build my own, build my own frames and have some fun. He's with got them. a couple of cool board track looking bikes that he, yeah, those, that he, those made, I he made the myself. frames for. They're pretty badass looking because it's different, definitely different. That's so cool. I, I've got a board track bike, but it was made out of a Schwinn Cruiser SS that was made like 15 years ago. A buddy of mine uh, chopped the frame and extended it 11 inches, flipped the bars over, and it looks like a cool board tracker. That's fun. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. It's so, cool. A lot of those old bike manufacturers also became, eventually became motorcycle manufacturers. Like Pope, well, Pope was building bikes or motorcycles. Yes. <clears throat> well, at yeah. the turn of the century, there were over 5,000 registered bike manufacturers in America. And oh, my gosh. Then in 1903, of course, you know, that's when Ford started doing mass production and Harley started. And, and uh, most of those bike you know, manufacturers became vendors for larger manufacturers like Ford and Chevrolet and Harley Davidson, Indian. You know, they oh, they all started God. making parts for them. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. 
Because yeah, yeah. at the turn of the century, the bicycle was modern transportation. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people don't realize the Wright brothers were bicycle mechanics. Exactly. Yeah, they made bikes before they made the airplane. Yep. Yeah. At, now, uh, are, are their bikes, were, are, are, can anybody ever find any of their original bikes? Or were they ever around? At the Smithsonian Museum, they have their original airplane at the Smithsonian, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they have an original Wright Brothers bicycle sitting wow. next to it. I think it's, it's got to be priceless. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would love to find it's, one of those. There's the word. It's priceless. Mm -hmm. Those were some yep. smart dudes, right. man. They yep. were some smart guys. Very cool. Well, and you've learned, you've uh, lent your design hand to some more recent recreations of some older cruiser-style bikes too, haven't you? Yeah, actually, I originally back in '99, uh, I started working with Felt and Nerve, and we redesigned the cruiser with the tank on it type bike. Mm -hmm. And then Felt and Nerve ended up getting into a battle where they were suing each other. They split, and they both claimed that they owned that bike. That bike ended up getting stuck in a legal battle, both of <laughs> them trying to own it. Meanwhile, they both redesigned something that was similar to it and started selling that and uh, were very successful with both of those while mine was stuck in a legal battle and ended up uh, <laughs> you know, kind of going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it was a shame but both of them ended up because originally when i designed it i did it on a royalty basis so i was going to get paid for every bike that sold but it got so stuck in the legal battle that it wasn't able to sell they they fought each other for about two and a half years meanwhile they both did their own iteration of it and sold the heck out of them wow so, yeah hey you it's know, unfortunate maybe i shouldn't say anything but you almost wonder if that was part of the plan from the beginning <laughs> <laughs> it may have been wow so you're, you're into bikes as a kid you're around the whole model car thing were were you into cutting up model cars and like kit bashing oh yeah yeah awesome no, i cu i cut those up chopped them up and i would end up taking the body to my dad's shop painting them and then reassembling and putting them all together and you know they didn't last long because i wanted to play with them and throw them away <laughs> but i had fun doing it and then I would say probably at the age of about uh, 11 to 12 is when I really started getting serious with my dad. And every every spare minute I had, I was in the shop built working on the full-size cars. So I kind of – I went away from model building at, at about 11, 12 years old. As far as like the design thing went with you, were you interested in design as like a serious pursuit at that point? Or uh, just... Yeah, I – was serious about it when I was seven years old and I saw Alex Trembulous. My dad was a phenomenal artist. And at the age of three, I would sit next to my dad and copy whatever he was designing or drawing on the table. When he was done, he would draw over and over and over again because he was my hero and I wanted to be as good as him. And then at the age of seven, when I saw Alex Trembulous, it was like, you know, that's another level that I, I was uh, introduced to that I thought, wow, I want to be able to do that now. And I was drawing all the time as a kid. And at about the age of 14 is when I started being able to draw as good as my father. And he kind of put the pencils down and he would just explain to me what he wanted to do to the cars in the shop. And I would design them for him. And then we were building together. At and that age? At, wow. at the age of At the age of 11, we were building a van for, for our family. And my dad had laid out some graphics on it, and then he told me what he wanted to do, and I didn't like the idea of what he wanted to do. 
but he was going to do it anyway. <laughs> and I remember sitting on a ladder in the shop and I was in tears crying, telling him, don't do it, don't do it. And that was how, you know, moved I was by design. I just, I didn't want to see him do this, these graphics on the van. I liked it the way it was, but he wanted to add this one element that I thought was going to kill it. And to this day, I'd say it killed it. <laughs> <laughs> that comes up at Thanksgiving dinner every year. <laughs> yeah, do you remember? Shut up, Chick. Yeah. But there was another reason that he was doing it. It was uh, metal flake green and black. And the metal flake, when it was on, was a little bit blotchy. And he was adding that graphic, this element of this kind of swoop that was going down the whole side of the van uh, just to get rid of the blotchiness. It worked for that but it, it wasn't needed on the van. So, so, wow. wow, that's cool. So that's like that, like an early manifestation of like what basically became your style that, you know, that whole clean, you know, cleanliness for its own pursuit for lack of a better word. I mean, that's the way. And my dad, my style. dad's that way as well. Uh, both of us feel that if you're going to modify something, modify it to make it more beautiful. Don't modify it just for the sake of modifying it. And if you're going to do it, try and do it where I don't want anybody to know that I was there. And my dad said the same thing to me. You want to finish it where it just looks better than it did from factory, but it still looks like it's factory built. Yeah, would do it. But I would mm-hmm. argue, though, it only works that way on vans unless you get into <laughs> Every van can benefit from, you know, a mural of a half-naked woman riding a polar bear. That's um, how they did it at the factory. Or a kiss album yep. cover. Yeah. There we go. But see, now now we come to the analogy that uh, that that we had talked about what Dick Vale had said. This is we're gonna mm-hmm. use a Dick Vale quote here. If you can't make it good, make it gaudy. See, so, <laughs> so <laughs> see uh, words I live by. I, I that's 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 my deal right there. Can't that's make my it good, make it gaudy. If you can't make it good, make it gaudy. Okay. Years and years ago, I heard Chip say, um, uh, "Just take the ugly out." Yeah, and those are those have those words have stuck with me for you know years and years and years. <laughs> That's funny. I was yeah, thinking I was gonna say... that it wasn't that it wasn't Chip that said that. It's just one of those internet memes where it's like, uh, somebody <laughs> I think that was it on. Was it Days of Thunder or, or not Days of Thunder? What was uh, Ricky Bobby, that movie? Oh, <laughs> Dad, Dad. Talladega Nights. <laughs> Talladega yeah. Nights. But you said always be first. If you're not first, you're last. <laughs> uh, that's it. It's just take the ugly out was something that my dad used to say as well. And uh, the other one was, uh, you know, watch the details and the big things will take care of themselves. Right. And uh, yeah, there's. That's a good ton- one. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. Watch the details. I remember one year I was up at Pleasanton and I saw the first car that I've ever seen that you'd ever done. And I heard your name and it was your Firebird. And oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And it had flush mounted glass in it. That's the first time I've ever seen that on a regular car, an older car. And I just thought that was cool. That was Thanks. so slick. I had and never it, seen it. I had never seen it done on uh, that era of car. We had done a few at my dad's shop with, you know, like a 32. We'd make a bigger windshield and then just put, it was the uh, S10 pickup, that little rubber molding that went around the windshield. Right. That's what we were using to glue them in. And I thought it'd be really cool to do it on, that was a 69 Firebird. Yeah. And I put the, uh, 
the rear door handles from a Honda Civic four-door, an 88. I used the rear door handles because they basically were the same shape as the uh, grill openings. Uh, and I used the rear door handle because it didn't have the key lock in it. And I put remote locks in it, did the blend on the bottom, but uh, just really cleaned the car up. And uh, originally when I got that car, I was going to restore it. And I remember at that time, Paddock was the company that made all the restoration parts for them. Mm -hmm. And when I got their catalog and I looked in there, you could get every single molding, every emblem. I mean, all the pieces to restore that car. And I thought, well, I'm not going to restore it because now anybody can restore it. I'm going to have some fun with it. So numbers, I uh, right? ended up modifying that one for myself. That was in 19, 1988. I didn't want a pro street car. I wanted it to be more of a, well, Gray Baskerville said that it was the first pro touring car ever built. Because he, really? he thought I was going to say that because I was going to make that comment. Bigger wheels and drop down. Yeah, it, yeah, it's never been, it was verbally said by Gray Baskerville that way. He shot it for Hot Rod Magazine and Carcraft, but... Uh, but uh, in any other magazines or, or no. historically, nobody's ever brought it back up and mentioned it. It was a great that looking was car. Yeah. yeah, that car is owned by Stuart Reed, who is the head of transportation design for Art Center now. That's really? When I first when I first met you, that I knew the car. You know, yeah. I knew who your dad was, and you know, you were just kind of getting that Art Center thing, and you just mm -hmm. kind of started over Boyd's. You were doing that stuff over there, yeah. and, and uh, but I remember the Firebird going. Yeah, yeah. That thing was just a cool. It was a, it was a shame it wasn't any colored pictures. It was all black and white stuff of, of memories. Yeah, most of the magazines, it was that real subtle champagne gray, and I blended it down at the bottom. And yeah, I had yeah, fun with that. It was a pretty car. I think I built that whole car for uh, $2,400. <laughs> wow. <Jeez. laughs> Good thing you didn't restore it, huh? <laughs> Recaro, Recaro donated the seats. The interior of that car was perfect. All I did was put the seats in and a steering wheel in it. Um, I had let a friend of mine borrow it, and he blew the motor up. It was a it was a 400, it had a four speed in it. But he so blew the right. motor up, and he gave me two grand to have the motor rebuilt. So I sent the motor out, got that rebuilt, and uh, so it didn't cost me anything to rebuild the motor. And I had twenty four hundred dollars in the car. I had uh, <clears throat> built a Carmen Ghia for my girlfriend, gave it to her, and that was her dad's car. He had bought it brand new, and. His mother passed away about two months after I had built the Carmen Ghia, and he got her Buick Park Avenue. It was a, she had like less than 2,000 miles on it. So he got this brand new car from his mom when she passed away, and he turned to me and he says, you want the Firebird? I'd love to have the Firebird. What do you want for it? It's yours. He gave it wow. to me. Wow. So, yeah. I was, let's see, that was uh, 1986 he gave it to me, so I was uh, <clears throat> I was 23 years old at the time. How cool. Well, yeah. couldn't have gone to more deserving hands, so. Well, thanks. But it was Did, amazing. Uh, he had every receipt in that car from when it was brand new, from when he bought gas or changed the oil, and everything was written down, all the mileage. I mean, absolutely every dime he had ever put in. If he bought a bulb, it was in the glove box. Everything was there. Wow. Oh, you wow. couldn't have asked for a cooler inheritance. So did he get to see and enjoy the car after you were done with it? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, he loved it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. But, uh, yeah, it was a fun car. His daughter and I broke up not long after that. You wouldn't let her drive I got, I got what I wanted. <laughs> 
Then I drove away from my uh, wedding in that car. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. <laughs> wow. So speaking of cars, though, I, I don't want to linger on particular cars, but um, I, I was asked I was asked by uh, the Engel brothers, no less, uh, they'd asked me to ask you, whatever became of your Thunderbird? I just sold that car about three months ago. Really? I had that car for 16 years, and I hardly ever drove it. But uh, I, I have a 47 Ford convertible that I, I went into the garage, and I was going to take that to a uh, – there's a little cars and coffee thing on Saturday <laughs> mor- or Sunday mornings right near my house. And I got in the 47 and it had a dead battery. And I thought, well, I'll take the, I'll take the Thunderbird, so, which we called the Speedbird. And that was Love built that as the pilot – thank you as the pilot episode of rides, which was before overhauling. Right on. So I got in that and I drove down there and I walked around and I was getting ready to leave and I'm walking back to the car and a guy walks up to me, he says, Hey, I've got a 2002 Thunderbird at home. What would you charge me to make it look just like yours? I said, you're better <laughs> off buying this one. I had, if you counted the, the hours and the time in that car and charged our shop rate in 2002, when I built it, I had 261,000 in, in that build. Oh. I said, you can have it for 50. And he didn't even bat an eye. He said, are you going to be here for a few minutes? I want to show it to my wife. I said, yeah. So he called his wife. She came down. She fell in love with it. He says, we'll take it. I said, all right. I said, uh, come to the shop tomorrow. I'll buy a few things that I wanted to clean up and pull out of it and uh, get it all ready for him. So he came down the next day with, with the money and he went home with it. That's awesome. How yeah, cool. It's that a one-of-a-kind like, car. Like three three months ago. Yeah. It was a beautiful car. I loved it. But uh, I need some room in the garage for other other plans. So while we're here, let, let's just work on it. So what what what's the latest? What's the latest personal project? The latest personal project, I'm working on a uh, 67 Chevy pickup that, uh, you know, is a C10. And about five years ago, I stumbled onto a real 67 Z28 Camaro motor. And I thought, this would be so cool to put it into a C10 and call it the C28 or, or a Z10. I wasn't sure what I was going to call it yet. And uh, so I started looking for a truck, and I finally found one. And, and I'm in the middle of that build right now. It's in the shop. But uh, the amazing thing is I bought the truck, all original, Survivor, original paint, everything else. Originally, I was going to leave the original paint and keep it kind of a patinaed truck. But I want it to look like GM built a sport truck in 1967 with the Z28 Camaro motor. And I started driving this truck and I blew up the original motor, spun a, spun a, a main bearing in it. And I pulled the motor out and I had the Z28 Camaro motor, but I went ahead and looked at the date that the block was actually uh, manufactured. And it was, January 23rd, 1967. Then I walked over and I looked at the Camaro motor, and the date code on that was January 23rd, 1967. Oh, wow. <laughs> totally wow. by accident. Both motors made the exact same day. Wow. One motor was built in mold number 19, and the other one was built in mold number 13. So wow. you could, couldn't oh, ask for that. that you, you couldn't plan on that happening. No. But every single part on this truck will be original, you know, GM performance parts, except the suspension. I'm putting all Hotchkiss suspension in it. Going to make it really drive nice. But, uh, you know, everything else is original parts. I want it to look like in 1967 you could have bought a sport truck. Just lowering it down a little bit, 
factory air, everything. When you open the hood, everything is factory parts. It's not going to look like, I don't want it to look like a hot rod. I want it to look like a production car. So what would you run for wheels on something like that? I'm actually running the rally wheels. Okay. Same thing with the, just, just like how you would have bought it from, from GM if they had built it. Like Even the, uh, the the sticker in the glove box, I'm, I'm actually reproducing that. It's in great shape, but I'm going to reproduce it and stick it back in there with C28 package. Just add that yeah. so, <laughs> you got to make C28 emblems that look kind of like oh, a 69, I am. I'm actually, 69 emblem. I am using the C from a GMC uh, logo, I actually, the real badge. I pulled that, and I, the rear panel on a 69 Z28 Camaro is a little bit bigger than the fender badge. So I'm using that C and the slash with the 28, cutting the Z out of it and putting the C into it, putting that on the front fender. So it'll look like a factory produced emblem on the front fenders. Oh, that'll be rad. I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a fun car. We'll have that uh, at SEMA also. Oh, cool. All I've got left is to uh, paint the cab and uh, some of the other parts. The chassis is all finished. I just got to get the cab painted. I'm doing the uh, orange and black houndstooth interior in it. So it's everything is Camaro related. I haven't decided whether I'm going to put the Camaro dash in it yet or not. That was one of the options. I'm a little leery of putting that in because there's so little room in that cab now. The dash is flat. If I put the Camaro dash that is rolled back, it brings that dash pad back, which I think is making it look a little bit too claustrophobic in there. So I may pull the plug on that idea and stick with the stock dash. Well, if you take the tank out and get some factory 67 seats and scoot them all the way to the rear of the cab, it, you may be able to get away with it. I have the factory 67 seats, but uh, I'm going to keep the bench in it. Oh, okay. And, uh, I was deciding which way to go there, but uh, <laughs> I like the bench in there. I don't think GM would have put bucket seats no. with, with the center console. Even as a, a sport truck, they would have kept it as a bench seat yep. or the one that was in the blazer with the fold-down center section i thought about getting one of those mm-hmm. That'd be i'm gonna i'm gonna leave the bench seat and uh just have well, some fun with this thing here's another option you could think of remember camaro had the bench seat in the uh 67 8 and nines yes that might that might be kind of cool but it may be a bit narrow yeah the truck is much wider than the uh camaro yeah. was yeah mm-hmm. yeah i've got to extend the dash i think it's almost uh like six inches if I if I put it in there. I've cut it, looked at where I've got to cut it up and stretch it. Yeah. 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 That truck is much wider than a Camaro. Yeah, I'm almost you know, the, that Camaro uh, dash would just be too expected, you know? I mean, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's interesting how narrow the Camaro actually is compared to when we built the uh, Imposter, which was that 65 Impala that I, I shortened that car 14 inches, which is only two inches longer than a 69 Camaro. But that car is 10 inches wider than a Camaro. I parked my, I had a black 69 at the time, and I put my 69 right next to the 60, the 65 to see the difference in proportion, because the goal was to make the 65 Impala, which is a big boat cruiser car. I wanted it to look like a muscle car. Right. It was only the front fender and the door are the same length as a Camaro, but the rear quarter when we were done was two inches longer. But when you put them next to each other, even though my black 69 was pretty low, I had the imposter even lower. And when you had those two side by side, if you looked at both of the front ends, it looked like the Camaro wanted to fall, fall over on its side because that, <laughs> that, 
that imposter, which was a 65 Impala, looked so tough being that wide. Ten inches wider is what that car is than a Camaro. I never would have guessed it was that wide. Yeah. I, I mean, it was a big boat. So if you're going to run it yeah. that long, it had to be that wide to look proportionate. It's, it's pretty funny. It, it made it just look like a real tough little bulldog being that short. It really exaggerated how wide that car is. I don't know how you did that car, cutting it into so many pieces. And then when, when it all went back together proportionally, it all worked. Because sometimes oh, when guys yeah. do that, they put it back together. There's one feature on the car they just can't get, and your eyes catch it, and you just can't look away from it. That car just worked. It Thank looks you. like Chevy should have built it that way. That's always the goal. And, yeah. you know, I, I did that in quarter scale first. What I'll do is I'll, I'll take a car and I'll lay out tape on the side of it. And uh, I'll put white tape down, and then I'll put black tape over it. And every four inches I'll cut, you know, the black tape out and pull it away. So... I've got four inches of black, four inches of white, and I'll take photos. I'll get about maybe uh, 20 feet away from the car, lay a parallel line, and I take a camera and I set it up so that the height of the camera is at the height of the door. So if you look across, you're, you're level with the two side windows. And I'll go to the very front of the car and I'll take a snapshot right at the front of the car, looking across from fender to fender. Then I'll take a picture right at the front wheel axle line. Then I'll take a picture at the door cut, the center of the door, the back door cut, the center of the rear wheel, and the back bumper. And then I'll, I'll take those to a Xerox machine, and I'll blow them up so that that white and black line, every one of those is exactly one inch. And then I'll put all of those Xerox copies together, and I measure the car, and I, I make sure that everything is exactly correct. Now I have a side view without any perspective that's exactly one-quarter scale. I can duplicate that and make bigger copies on their large format. I'll take the big copies back to the house or back to my studio, and I start cutting those up and reproportioning the car. And when I get it exactly how I want it, I'll put it on the wall. I'll walk out of the room, and I might come back a day or two days later. I'll look at it, and I'll see that one thing that you're talking about that bugs you that didn't work. Yeah. I'll find it, and I start reproportioning it until I get everything out of it that I don't like. Then what I do is I take one of the original copies of the side view of that car that I've pasted together, and I do a line drawing over it. It's exactly one quarter scale line drawing of its stock. And I usually use the front axle line as the zero line. And then I'll put the new one, the, the one that I've just cut up and pasted together, I'll set that front wheel right there, and I'll redraw the car. Now, if if I've moved something one inch in that scale, I know it's exactly four inches when it's the full-size car. So when I duplicate that and I put all the lines down, I know exactly how much I need to cut out of that car before I cut it. And I can plan where I'm going to cut the car so that it all falls back together and fits. Instead of trying to make all new parts, try and use the parts that were there existing. Figure out, you know, if the fender is getting taller in the center... You're not going to cut it just to move it. You're going to find out that area that's tallest. Take If I moved it seven inches, take three and a half inches from the front and the back of that, that line. Make sure that those two sections are the same shape. When I pull that section out and bring it together, the metal all fits together. Find those two spots that it all fits. <laughs> then start cutting it up and putting it back together. Oh, that's and cool. It takes time to plan it, but that's what I learned from my dad. Plan that's what you're going to do before you actually do it. That's amazing. So, 
Thanks. Measure three thousand times and cut once. <laughs> well, well, yeah. and another thing about that car too is that you used a, a relatively or brand new Corvette, so you're kind of stuck to track width and wheelbase, and well, so we it had to work on that. I went over to Delillo Chevrolet, which is two blocks from the shop. We bought that car, drove it back here, and started peeling it apart. <laughs> we, we we never we never cut a single electrical wire we unbolted and pulled everything apart then we cut the body off of that frame and i made a fixture that we welded the front half of that uh, frame to left the back half loose but made a fixture that slid inside of our table that we built and that was welded to the back half we cut it and we stretched that seven and five eighths inches is what i needed to get the wheelbase to we just okay. slid the back half back, and then we replaced the parts of the frame that were missing. <clears throat> well, so and, did you make another torque tube, or did you make a, a no, we made, drive shaft? We made a new torque tube and then had a carbon fiber drive shaft okay. made inside of it. Okay. So well, of course a, you did. company out there that, <laughs> that actually built that for us. So I'm going to ask the question that nobody's probably ever asked about this car. Uh, do you guys still get letters from the dealership requesting you to bring it back for service? <laughs> no, what I guess, I get, you know, we never used the red, we never used that license or registration. Okay. It's actually registered as the 65 Impala. That oh, car awesome. is. So I get notices from DMV all the time saying, uh, your registration will be revoked because you have not shown proof of insurance for this car. <laughs> and I just, so I don't need it. I bought that as a parts donor. So You're getting airbag recalls on a 65. <laughs> <laughs> the actual dealer used to live across the street from me, uh, Dave DeLillo from DeLillo Chevrolet. And he's actually seen the car. He came to the shop to see it because awesome. I, bought, I bought that Corvette from him and I told him what we were doing. He said, well, let me know and I'll come down to the shop. I want to check it out. So he did. What did he say? Oh, he loved it. Yeah. But he said, he said he had never had a customer buy a car. Two blocks is all we drove it, and we cut it all up. I hope you did a bunch of donuts in front of the shop first. No, I didn't. <laughs> that car had 26 miles on it when we cut it up. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's just actually awesome. that's pretty awesome. awesome. We, I can't we even imagine. That's too Put cool. it all back together. Every, every piece of wire, you know, we had to extend a couple where we extended the frame to get to the taillights and all that. But uh, all that wiring just plugged all right back in. It was all factory. Wow. Outstanding. Yep. So Still has OnStar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stuck in my Impala. Can you please get me out? Yeah. <laughs> Can you unlock my car, please? <laughs> it would work. We used all of the uh, stock Corvette latches and uh, door handles. Seriously, that's but, just yeah, handle. all the latch stuff. Because I, I yeah. remember we were down here one time and he was showing me all the little pieces on the car. It is quite amazing. Yeah, even the deck lid latch from the rear glass <laughs> with that on the deck lid. Unreal. So, the, and the, this is what makes you, in my mind, obviously the top of the game. Period. You oh. you not only are able to design something, but to be able to just not only back engineer, but then re-engineer something like that and make it all work as well as you did. That that blows my mind. I mean, well, thank you. I, there's you're, you're very welcome. There's there's no words to describe that. What yeah. that does in my brain. I mean, I'm sitting here going, you know, I, I have to nope. do little stuff like that, but nowhere near. I mean, the the sheer complexity of what you <clears throat> pulled off of that car is yeah. just unreal. 
you're, you're like the ultimate well, prototype guy. I mean, as far as building something, it's just incredible. Yeah. The hardest part of that car came in the middle of the build. And that was because Don and Elma Both, who are the owners of that car, they actually took a 65 Impala on their honeymoon. That's the car they drove. Not that exact car, but Don says, I want to build an Impala for my wife. And I said, well, why don't we just take a brand new Corvette and put, put an Impala body on it so she can drive it and enjoy it? Because if you give a woman a hot rod and she has any problems with it, she's going to hate it and never want to drive it. Yeah, so I said, let's you. just make it a brand new car. If she has a problem, she can pull into a Chevy dealership. They can plug it into their computer. They'll know exactly what needs to be replaced, and she can be on her way. He agreed. So it, we were building it to be his wife's driver. And <laughs> midway through the build, he says, let's go to Riddler with it. Well, this is a brand new Corvette that we just bought at the dealership. The bottom of it is a production car. And the Riddler, you're trying to take a piece of rolling art. And I said to him, I said, I, I did not want to do it. I didn't want to build it to be a Riddler contender. But he fought me on it. He said, no, I want to go to Riddler. All the work was taking that original chassis and using every single stock component, but dressing it and turning everything into a piece of art. Taking that frame and finishing every bracket, welding it, cleaning it up, making it so that you could put that car in the air and let the judges crawl underneath it and have an absolutely gorgeous piece of art on the stand. And wow. every single part on that car is a factory part that has been redressed. Wow. And that to me, see right there, you, you hit another great point. Don't get me wrong. It, it takes a lot to come up with something out of the blue. And I want to touch on that in a minute, but to be able to take something that exists and out of sheer necessity, knowing that it has to function as a factory part and make it beautiful like that, that's a whole other level of this way. I have to ask really what planet or dimension are you really from? <laughs> um, <laughs> that was that was the hardest part of that car and that's i mean it, it, it more than doubled the price of the car because all the work is underneath where when you walk up to the car you don't see it and even when you put it up in the air it looks so simple that it doesn't look difficult but that was the most difficult part of the whole build is making everything look like it's supposed to be this way but uh it's also a challenge. I love a challenge, but if I were to build another Riddler car ever, I want to start it that way so that we're building a complete chassis that is a piece of sculpture, is a piece of art. But to take a production car and turn it into that, that's so much work. It you know, starts to take the fun out of it. You know, When you're looking at right. just a cable that's underneath the car, and the cable is an ugly piece, you know, now we got to turn that into a beautiful, you know, now we're, we're looking, how can we reroute it? How can we make it into a sleeve and make it a gorgeous piece that looks like a show car? You know, that's the work. Wow. wow. That was, I got to tell you that you know, every year... piece of, every piece of suspension, all the, all the A-arms grinding and finishing and trying to make the A-arms look like, and then painting them and making them look like, you know, one-off pieces, which they are in the end. They're all one-off, but they started as a production part. 
Man, it's amazing. Getting, getting all of those numbers off of every, every single pair has cast in numbers. And we had to get rid of all that as well. I, when I was down here, we, uh, we were both sitting, it was kind of cool, both sitting on the floor and I'm laying underneath the car and he's telling me to look at certain things. And he just, it was funny because obviously he'd been down there in that same spot 9,000 times where everything was at going, hey, look at this and check this out. No, a little more to your left. And like, oh crap, I didn't even see that. You know, so yeah, it was, it was not really you'd want to drive around town. Well, it's how, how the frame comes along and then it turns and goes in for the front suspension. But then you've got a fender that's hanging out here. And how do you have that fender bolt to that frame and not look like you just got this ugly bracket coming over here to hold it? So you end up reshaping the frame and bringing it over and then pocketing a part of the frame. It sits right into that pocket. And then the body panel is flush from the bottom of the fender to the bottom of the frame. And it's just a beautiful cut line that is planned so the cut line isn't zigzagging from a fender to a rocker. It's one single line. You have to address every single piece so that you don't have a bunch of different individual pieces that are all beautiful. It needs to look like it was designed and built this way. How many hours did you have in that car? More than any other car we've built. <laughs> do, you, wow. I mean, do you know? Did you keep track? Um, I think it's around 22,000 hours in that car. Wow. You know, it's, it's a good thing you only charge 10 bucks an hour. <laughs> Thank goodness. Nobody yeah. could have afforded it. I mean, the, the year that that car won, the highlight for me personally, it, and it's this is a stupid thing. I feel like a little kid telling you this, you know, so be it. I The year that that car went into the grade eight, I had a car that I had worked on. I had a green dart. And oh, yeah. When those, I love that car. Thank you. Well, uh, I, I have to tell you something. And sorry to interrupt, but I'm going to tell you, when I go to a show and I'm competing, I hate competing at shows. I look around and I find a car that I think, okay, that's a car that's going to beat us. And I convince myself that we've lost and the weekend can only get better if we, if we win. But I convince myself that we've lost. And it was that car that I convinced myself would, was going to beat us. Whoa. Okay. Well, there you go, Brian. <laughs> that's wow, so messed Brian. up because uh, I saw that was a, that was a beautiful car, by the way. That was a that was a fun car, and I mean, really talented crew on that thing. You, you couldn't beat where you know that car came together. But man, I it was so funny because I had started putting the pieces together on you know the '65, and I was going, "Oh my god!" I was like, "Everything you did to that car, I was like, okay, that's the main competition, and I think we lost." <laughs> and I so we were thinking so the same of each other. I felt so bad because uh, when Will had sent me a thing that says, hey, uh, you know, grade eight. And I said, awesome, saw that. And I didn't have the heart to say, I think I know what's going to win. Oh, well, but when you. he sent me a text and he says, hey, Chip, you know, Chip's car. I, and I, I just sent back and said, I knew from day one. <laughs> <It was laughs> I laid underneath your car for about an hour with those guys and checked out everything. And I love the way you reproportioned the top and all the, all the pieces and the the headlights and the taillights and the grill, you did some amazing design work on that car. Thank you. And, I, uh, wow. but he, he, Brian just recorded that, and he's going to make yeah. that his ringtone. <laughs> yeah, I'm literally I'm going to sit here. There's going to be some Brian time tonight with that part of the show. <laughs> yeah. Here's the way I always say that the, the Riddler, uh, the winner, is, is found. The judges get underneath there, and they look for the worst two-inch square of the whole car and they find the worst two inch square on every one of the grade eight cars 
and the car with the best worst two inch square wins. <laughs> two inch square. The best worst two inch square. And when I got underneath your green car and I saw the welds on the exhaust, that that's what I knew was the downfall on the car. Everything else was absolutely stunning on that car, but they left the welds. Yeah, um, I yeah, we'll we'll save that for another time off the exhaust. <laughs> so I, because when when before the show, you know, when you're standing outside, I don't get to see any of that. You're just looking from the outside. After the show when we're doing their teardown, that's when I went over and, and uh, talked to those guys, and I wanted to look underneath that car, and I got to look underneath it, and it, you know, it's it's not a bad thing. Right. It's just that the welds weren't dressed, and the judges would look at that. So. And that, like, that's well, the scary they'd part. Finish the welds. I just thought if they'd have finished the welds, they'd have beat me. <laughs> it was that close. It was. Well, it's like a Persian part. rug, you know. <laughs> I always wonder if there yeah. is a Persian rug out there where somebody got disgruntled that day at the factory <laughs> and like made yeah. the eyes crossed on one of the figures in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, and by the way, you know that that's where all van murals come from, right? <laughs> Persian, Persian rugs. Persian rugs and tapestries. Yeah, that's, that's the that's the title of my next book. <laughs> Persian rugs, tapestries, and custom vans. There we go. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> um, man. So, okay, let me ask you this then. Uh, as far as like design sensibility, when you get into something, okay, like okay, the imposter, that's one whole different aspect of things. If you do another car where you're designing from scratch, you really don't seem to work in any kind of a bubble design wise you really seem to just the, the world literally is your oyster you're out there kind of looking at everything i mean do you like my brain works in a way that i look at any kind of car like earlier you mentioned a mira so i might look at a lamborghini mira and say oh i've got to do something with the trim on this next car that is just super lightweight looking and all of a right. sudden in my head i'm designing an entire car just around the idea that a piece of trim has to be super lightweight. Right. Like where in, in, in the chip foose mindset, how, how does design start for you? Where does it manifest? For me, I, I think of everything as I want to do good design and I want to do timeless design. And I think if, you know, if I'm starting from scratch, I will come up with a car and it might be, you know, whatever the th I want every single piece of that car to have that theme in it. And if you're in the shop and you see a part on a bench in the shop and you think, wow, that's got a really neat shape to it. But then you see another part to the car in another part of the shop, you'd say, oh, that part looks like that part. One might be a bracket to hold a headlight on. The other one might be a hinge for the deck lid. But there's something about those two parts that makes it look like the same designer did them. And that's the way I think about a car as far as all the parts have to be that way if you're designing from scratch and designing something to compete for a Riddler-type you know, uh, show or, or the award. But what I want to do when I'm designing a car is design something that, that is good design. And what I mean by that is 10 years from now, I still want it to be good design. I don't want to do anything that's trendy. If it's trendy, I want to go 180 degrees from it and go the other way. Anything that I see that's happening out, I don't want to do anything like it. I want to do something completely different so that it's not trendy 
and my goal is, you know, these customers are going to spend a whole lot of money building these cars. And the worst thing that I could ever do to that customer is finish a car for them, give it to them, and four or five years later, he's thinking, you know, I'm going to call up Chip. He calls me up and he says, hey, let's up. I didn't do my job. If I made it a beautiful car 15, 20 years from now, it's still a beautiful car. Everything works. It's not trendy. It's not, you know, I don't want a customer to look at a car and think, you know, five years after we built it, oh, yeah, those wheels were popular five years ago, but they're not now. I want to design a wheel for that car that fits that car, may never go on another car, but it is built and designed for that car and everything works. It's That's what I call good design. If it's trendy design, you're planning on redoing that car one day. That's that's awesome, and, and I give you a lot of credit, too, because you've reached that, that weird kind of tipping point in your career where you literally, if you said, guess what, guys, hold my beer, watch what I'm going to do, <laughs> and you went out and you grabbed a bunch of, like, pillow back, you know, Delta 88 Brome, you know, pillow back <laughs> seats and started putting them in cars just to see who followed <laughs> The following year, there'd be 20,000 cars at the NSRA Nats that all had pillow back, you know, General Motors brome seats in them. I you know. built a car that we put pillows in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> when you said that, I thought of it. It was uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. He had a 71 Olds Cutlass uh, uh, convertible. And uh, we ended up building, we put a Z06 Corvette motor and, and some drivetrain and uh, all suspension and had some fun with the car, but when I got the car and I met with him, he says, uh, can we save that backseat material? I said, well, why would you want to do that? And he says, well, I dated Faith in this car. <laughs> and so when we finished the car and I did all new interior, I saved the material off the backseat. And uh, I had the uh, sew up two heart pillows and put those in the backseat when we sent the car back to him. That's <laughs> Dry cleaned first, I hope. <laughs> oh, of course. Uh, really? Scotch yeah. guarded. You know me. <laughs> Dude, was it like, well, come on, Naugahyde? I don't know. Naugahyde might be, never mind. Ugh. No, it was cloth. I will tell you, Ooh. it was cloth. When it was done, it was all leather, but it had cloth uh, heart seats or, or heart pillows in the back seat. <laughs> That's was, funny. Yeah, he thought, he thought that much was better. Funny. I was thinking a vinyl pillow was going to be kind of weird yeah no it was no it was uh it was a gm factory uh cloth that was on those seats nice oh funny left the pleats in it just uh made them into heart shapes way cool see i i i like the way you think well then yeah i'm sitting here telling the master i like it's, the way you think that's the hit that's the history of the car you can't you can't get rid of the history no you you just have some fun with it with a little sense of humor. That's too funny. <laughs> Gotta have a sense of humor. That's just mm-hmm. the way it is. Oh, 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 I was gonna say, you know, this is totally shifting gears away from you know what we've been talking about. <laughs> but I know that you're involved in progeria research, um, and uh, I just I kind of wanted you to touch on that if you would. Uh, well. Progeria Research Foundation is a group in Boston, and uh, it was actually started by uh, it was a, a kid named Scott, or, or I'm sorry, Sam, uh, was born with progeria. 
and neither one of his parents, which happened to both be doctors, knew what progeria was. And when they found out that that uh, Sam had progeria and that nothing was being done about it, they started the foundation in hopes to save Sam. Now, Sam, unfortunately, passed away about three years ago at the age of, uh, I think he was just about to turn 18. But I had a sister named Amy who passed away in 1985 at the age of 16 with progeria. And when I heard about progeria, I thought, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like to be involved. So we do a big car show every year in uh, Brazelton, Georgia with year one. And uh, we end up doing a poker tournament. Cost costs $1,000 to get into the poker tournament. We usually have about 100 people in the poker tournament. And uh, the winner gets a, we usually have a GM crate motor that goes to the winner. Uh, we'll have a Mac toolbox. We'll have a bunch of tools. Uh, foos wheels, other parts, but uh, yeah, we end up we we will generate about a hundred grand just off the poker tournament, and usually about another twenty to thirty grand the next day at a big car show, and uh, it's a great weekend. We have a lot of fun, but that's how I get involved with Progeria. Just once a year, I put on that car show, and uh, we usually uh, meet a few kids with Progeria. They show up at the event, and uh, we just have a great weekend. That's cool. Now, well, for and, anybody and who's not aware, progeria is, is it genetic? Is it, it's, what? it's, what it is, is rapid aging. So, uh, most of the kids, you know, uh, my mom knew that something was different about Amy because babies are normally really soft. And when Amy was born, she already had, uh, almost like, uh, muscles. She was firm. And, uh, this is because the growth is, uh, sped up and uh, you go through all of your stages so at the age of three you're full grown and Amy at the age of 16 was three feet two inches tall and weighed 26 pounds and uh, you know she never got any bigger but uh, she had the heart the size of the world and she had the greatest sense of humor and everybody that ever met Amy just fell in love with Amy and we lived in Santa Barbara California and there's a lot of celebrities Amy had some amazing friends and her best friend was John Stamos. He had met her. Okay. He was a drummer with the Beach Boys. My sister knew one of the Beach Boys, and we got to go to a concert and got to go backstage. John Stamos met Amy and just fell in love with her. Amy used to go to Disneyland with John and all kinds of different things. He took her everywhere. And, uh, you know, I think the world of John because of the way he treated Amy. What I really wanted for Amy, my biggest dream for Amy was for her to, you know, know what true love was mm -hmm. she had a lot of friends that loved her but she really wanted a boyfriend and she never had that but i would say that john was probably the closest thing to that for her <laughs> and uh, i'd do anything in the world for john today that's so cool so and so and progeria typically the it's mid to late teens is about as long as anybody lives with that is that yes yes have they identified what it is that causes it? Yes, or? they've actually done quite a bit. They've, they've got a drug. I, I don't know the name of the drug, but uh, it's actually causing the kids to uh, grow and gain weight and uh, prolonging their lives a bit. Uh, I don't know where they're at with current stuff. I, I'll, I'll probably talk to them. Uh, September is the show. It's the third weekend of September in Braselton, Georgia, year one. But mm -hmm. uh, that's when I'll see everybody from Progeria Research Foundation and get caught up. But I remember when, when Sam was with us, uh, 
when they were doing the clinical trials and trying this drug out, I had seen Sam the year before, and then I had seen him after a year of clinical trials, and I thought, he looks bigger to me, and I asked his dad, I said, how much has Sam grown? And when they're in the middle of clinical trials, they can't give, they can't talk about any of, you know, things that happening. So he couldn't tell me, he says, I can't give you any information on it. And I turned to Sam and I said, hey, Sam, do you have any new clothes? And he says, I have all new clothes. So I knew then that yeah, he's growing. <laughs> nice. I, I like that. And, uh, nice. It was pretty fun. But uh, yeah, and if you ever meet one of these kids, it's it's a phenomenal experience. Yeah. Hey, I know that. Anybody, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that just sharing my sister Amy's life was probably one of my biggest life lessons. And, you know, a lot of people will take advantage of their bodies and just, I beat mine up by working a lot. Yeah. But, you know, I've never done any drugs or, or been a big drinker. And I just didn't want to take advantage and do something to my body. Uh, another lesson that I had was when I was 10 years old, one of my cousins had eight of his friends over, at, or he was with eight of his friends at a party. And one of his friends had gotten some cocaine from his brother and brought it to this party. And all nine of them did the cocaine. And the cocaine was laced with strychnine and ended up killing all nine kids. Oh, wow. And wow. So I remember at the age of 10 thinking, wow, you know, you don't know what you're getting out there. And I have never tried drugs and didn't want to drink. The reason I didn't want to drink was because growing up with my dad in the body shop, Monday mornings we'd come into the shop and there'd be wrecked cars out front. And I would hear the stories that, oh, this was a drunk driver that wrecked his, wrecked his Corvette. And I remember this one Corvette that came into the shop had caught on fire. And I'm looking in the car and my dad says, my dad's standing next to me. And he says, what do you see in that driver's seat? And you could see where the driver's ribs were in the plastic, the vinyl had melted around the guy's ribs. And when they pulled him out of the car, it left the ribs, the shape of his ribs. He had burned in the car and he had left uh, a bar up the street, was drunk, left the bar. He was racing down the street, lost control and hit a telephone pole and the car caught fire. And I remember at 10 years old, you know, this image in my head. And then when I got my 56 pickup, I bought my truck from my dad when I was 14. And I put every dime I had in every spare minute building it to be a show truck. So I had a complete show truck when I was 16 years old. And I thought, I'm never going to drink and drive because I don't want to wreck my truck. Because <laughs> I, I associated drinking with wrecking a car. And I didn't yeah. want to do that because this was my life savings I had in that truck. I spent 11 months just painting it. And uh, I didn't want to damage it. So I didn't drink and I didn't do drugs because... I knew at the age of 10 when I lost my cousin that, you know, if you do drugs, you're taking, you're, you're risking your life and, uh, didn't want to do it. So having Amy and knowing those two things, you know, Amy couldn't be normal. I was lucky to be normal. I didn't want to, you know, destroy that normalness. I guess the mind didn't matter. That's not normal. <laughs> but, but I had a working body and I was what we perceived to be normal. I was luck. I was one of the lucky ones. And thank, thank you for sharing that. That's that that that's an awesome perspective to have. 
I, mean, I I'm sorry I took it way off topic, but I just I was <laughs> no. kind of going through some notes and stuff. I I knew that you you know were involved with that, and so I wanted to see, you know, what was close to your heart. So, thank you. Well, I knew that my parents were really busy with Amy, and and you know there was a burden of you know what's going to happen. Is Amy going to die? And and that fear, and I didn't want to be another burden to my parents, so I just wanted to be a good kid and. I love cars, so I went that direction. How neat. Very good. Jeez. I, you know, it's funny. I shared kind of a similar thing with you. I mean, at, at 14, I bought my first car. I bought a 69 cool. Chevelle. And I was mm-hmm. fortunate to have two real motorhead parents who got it. You know, I mean, we didn't, you know, go out and grab the shell of a car. And my mother wasn't like, what the hell are you going to do with that? My mom was like, oh, the floors are in good shape. So you're going to save a lot of money here. And <laughs> <laughs> It was, you know, so for me, I was in kind of that same boat where, you know, yeah, I went to parties and stuff like that in high school. I mean, but I was never the drinker. Mm -hmm. I was never like the party animal. And plus, you know, I mean, if you've seen pictures of me, you know, I went to all the parties. I got the last girl, but I was there, you know, (laughs) and, uh, but I never wanted to put that car at risk. Right. To me, it was far more important that that car made it home and was in one piece than it was to go out and fool around and, and race people and screw around like that. So that was your first car? That was my first, yeah. I, and, That's uh, awesome. I sold that car, and uh, the proceeds from that made the down payment on my first house. Very cool. Fun now, times, first, you know? My first car was that 56 pickup, but I had another car that my dad had promised to me before that, which I was so excited about. It was a 1931 coupe. Uh, full fendered. It was chopped three inches. Had a chrome firewall and had a chrome nine-inch Ford rear end in it. It was a customer that had brought it to my dad's shop. Wanted my dad to chop it and get it just in primer. So the front axle was chromed. Everything was done. My dad got it chopped, got it in primer, and this guy was a pilot. Guy never called, never called. The car sat at the shop for 12 years. Oh, and when it was getting closer and closer for me to uh, to start driving, my dad kept saying, well, you can have the coupe. We'll finish that for you. So I was planning on getting the coupe. And I remember when I was 14, my dad came home from work one night, and he says, I sold the coupe today. Uh, that was going to be my car. <laughs> and I remember I said to him, I thought that was going to be mine. He says, ah, you can buy the truck from me. I ended up buying the truck. And I, I paid him $2,000. And... He turned around and bought my older sister a car. <laughs> <laughs> so I paid for it. <laughs> but uh, I, I know, hope you get a lot of it mileage. Was, it was, uh, I was heartbroken when he sold the car. Here's the greatest thing about it. He sold it to my best friend's dad, and his dad built it for him. Oh. So I ended, up, I ended up riding around it in high school. Wow. <laughs> He got it. Scott Bruin. He had he had the chop top model A. Now Chip's got to tell a story. He told he told me we were working at Disneyland, and because uh, he's 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 kind of the he's kind of the go fast. He's a speed freak. He likes driving fast. That's one of his one of his things. But uh, and since I don't remember the story, but uh, when you had your little when you had your little rabbit, your little GTI, my little GTI, and, and it had a stopwatch in it. Well, they have a they have a trip computer in that car from okay, the factory. Okay, so explain. So you were going to work and you were pretty so, much racing yourself. This is pretty much your 
So you got to yeah, tell actually, the story. <laughs> if you're familiar with Santa Barbara, there's a road that goes between Santa Barbara and uh, Solving or Bealton that's called San Marcos Pass. Goes over the mountains. It's you know there's a drop off on one side and there's hairpin turns and all kinds of fun stuff. And where I worked was right next to the airport in Santa Barbara, and it was 28 miles to drive through Santa Barbara, get to that road, go over that road, and then uh, through Solvang to get to my parents' house. 28 miles. And I used to work until about two or three in the morning, and then I would make the trip home. And it was always set the trip computer to zero and leave. And, you know, it would just go faster and faster and faster, and I'd learn the road better and better. And the best time I ever had was I made the 28 miles in 16 minutes, two, two seconds. And it was an average of 106 miles an hour. And that was in a 1985 Volkswagen GTI with 15-inch Momo wheels and uh, uh, 195 50-15 tires on it, Goodyear's. Oh, oh those were the good old days. Oh, right. man. It, it, and that car drove like there was a pole in the middle of the car that you could just with your right foot, you could make that car pitch and, and go wherever you wanted. And when I used to make that drive, I would do it at night. And I used, it was a two-lane highway. I used both lanes. And I'd be in a four-wheel drift going through a corner. And I'd see headlights starting to come around the corner because you're on a mountainside. So you see the headlights before you see the car. Right. And then I would just drift back into my lane. The car would go by. <laughs> and then I'd come back into that lane in, in a complete drift. <clears throat> And our, my roommate, his name is Mark, Mark Coom, and I was telling him how fast I was going and, and my times, and he, he said, no way, absolutely no way are you doing that. And so one night, you know, I had moved from my parents' house to his house, and I was renting a room from him, and I, I had told him this, and one night uh, I needed to go up to my parents' house, and I said, hey, I got to go to my parents, you want to go with me? I'll show you how I do this trip. He goes, yeah, sure scared the living hell out of him. He said he would never ride with me again. <laughs> he thought I was absolutely insane. And I remember at work one day, like I say, from work to the house was 28 miles. And it's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And my boss, Alain Clenet, he, uh, he leans over and he's got, he's French and he's got this accent. He says, hey, Chippe? And I said, yes. He says, do you have the drawing you did of the automobile? And I said, uh, actually, it's at my house. This is when I was living with my parents. I had a studio set up there, so I would finish artwork at night in my in my studio there. I said, "It's up there. Uh, do you need it?" And he says, uh, "Never mind." And I said, "What do you need it for?" And he says, "Well, I have a meeting in an hour, and I was going to use it in that meeting." All right. And I said, "I can get there and back in an hour." He says, "You cannot get to solving there and back in an hour." I said, "I'll tell you what. I'll clock out." And I'll clock back in, and if I can do it in less than an hour, you pay me for the hour. Okay. <laughs> Fifty-two minutes. There, there and back. Now, statute of limitations has expired, apparently. I clocked out, and I showed him the, the time, and he says, he looks at me, he says, you're insane, and I don't ever want you to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> But it was 52 minutes, and I remember I came around one corner, and I'm in a drift, and there's this long downhill straight, and then it goes up on the other side. And about maybe, and this this whole stretch is about 
maybe two and a quarter miles. And you can see that whole straight. You can see. And when I came around the first corner, I could see a car that's not quite halfway that's in front of me going in the same direction. And I see another car coming around the corner that's like two and a half miles up. I see him coming around the corner and I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to lift. I don't want to slow down, but I'm going to get to these two cars right about the time that they're passing. And I, I, and I thought, I'm not lifting. And I kept <laughs> my foot in it. And when I turned to miss the car that it was basically when those two were passing is when I turned to miss the car and turn into the other lane. And I probably missed the first car by about maybe three or four inches <laughs> and the second car by about the same going right between them. I turned hard because I was, I was probably doing about 130 miles an hour and I turned real hard to get over into the, the oncoming car lane right behind the car that was just, that I was just passing. Right. And when I corrected, I went sideways and I remember going sideways and you know, on a front wheel drive car, when you lift, if you get sideways, it'll do that uh, dog leg. The inside tire will come up. Yeah. Yep. I had lifted and it dog legged right as I went, tried to straighten out and I went way up and I just put my foot back in the throttle. And I thought I can't lift. And I went sideways for probably a good 30 to 50 yards. And I remember just holding my foot in it and correcting so I've got I'm turning to the left as I'm as I'm sliding and when that car corrected it went so fast that it dog legged the other way and I just kept my foot in it. Now on the right <laughs> side is about a 700 foot drop. And I don't want to go over the road. And I'm going the other way and then it snapped back and went to the third third time it dog legged to the left and then it settled back down and I went straight. I never lifted oh. until just when that dog leg happened. And I'm thinking to myself, that must have been the coolest sight for that carbine. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, sadly, I'll bet they didn't appreciate it at all. Uh, probably not. But... Well, I'm going to say, how many now? How many years are we talking? Because I wonder if at this point their their rectum has completely like loosened <laughs> and relaxed. Where'd my back seat up. go? It, there's only a few times that everything goes into slow motion. That was one of them. And you know, when you're driving, another time is when I spun out backwards in the rain, and I was next to a cliff also. And I just slowly stepped on the brake and was able to stop the car and then go forward without without hitting that cliff. But the coolest time I've ever had in a car was I did uh, Bob Lutz Drive 101 in Las Vegas, and that's the uh, Indy race cars. And I was at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. I was doing about 174 miles an hour Dude. in one of the turns, and the right rear lower rod end snapped off the upright and the Ooh. back of the car immediately goes towards the wall and your initial thought you know what they train you to do is just let go of the wheel and and so you don't you know when it when the right. front tires hit the wall that wheels that that steering yeah. wheel is going to snap right. and it's going to break your wrists but what i did was i turned and tried to correct the car when the when the rear end goes to the right and you turn to the right so i turned to the right and i just see the wall coming at me i thought and everything went into slow motion. I thought, I don't want to hit the wall. So I turned the other way and I spun the car out. And when I got it backwards, then I corrected to the right 
and started going to the infield. And the car goes down the track, but then spins back around and goes up back towards the wall. I did it again. I turned to the left, spun the back end around. The car drops down and spins around and does another 180 slowly going back towards the wall. And I did it four times. I spun that car in 180 and got it to the infield while I was in a left-hand turn. With the back end broken over. Yeah. And this guy from, from the uh, Drive 101 school comes out on one of those gators. And he's yelling at me, screaming at me, what are you doing? What are you? And I go, oh, hold on. Something broke back there. And when he got back there and he saw exactly what it was, that A-arm, that lower control arm is on the actual pavement. So I'm just steel on pavement. And this car is skidding around. And he looks at me. He says, how'd you keep it off the wall? I said, everything went into slow motion. And I did whatever it took to keep it from the wall. <laughs> but, yeah, there's... Did you, get, did you get your money back? No, but I have the arm actually sitting in the other room. They, they took it off the car, and everybody from the school signed it and gave it back. Wow. And then said I could come back anytime I wanted. But now the school's gone. Yeah, because they want their seat back. <laughs> Here's the other thing is, then, you know, they have me out of the car, and then they're walking me back. And this was on about lap five of the eight that you're supposed to get. And we're walking back, and... Uh, he says, yeah, we're going to all get together in this room where I go, well, I'm not done. He says, you want to go back? I said, that's the most fun I've ever had in the car. Yeah, I want to go back. I thought I got eight laps. That was lap five. <laughs> so, I think actually, a few more to get back up to speed, too. Yeah. So, yeah, and you that, save their car. So you said you were blast. kind of the hero. You saved the car. You didn't wreck well, the car. Well, if you wreck it, you're responsible for it, too. Oh, oh wow. So, yeah. oh, I didn't wreck it. No. It was on video. Did anybody record it? It wasn't on video. Oh, I wish it was. That would be cool to see. Yeah, oh, that'd be amazing. I wish I did have that. So, with your driving skill now, let's see. You you saved a uh, you saved a car from the wall, but on the same token, you know, and I'm glad you did this because you deprived the world of having like the Chip Foose Memorial Lookout. You know, someplace. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have wrecked a few of them also. One time with the GTI, I was with my wife, and we're going into a uh, shopping mall, and there was a big delivery semi that was blocking the main road going into the, uh, into the mall. So I remember I said to my wife, ah, road race, and I made a right turn, and I hit the throttle, and I went and I spun around a, a couple parked cars and coming back around. So I was going around the back of the truck, wasn't expecting another car to be coming up that aisle, and I came around. <laughs> And I slammed on the brakes in this car. It was a brand new Toyota. They went and I stopped, but she hit my front bumper that was hanging out and just can opened the, uh, the wheel well on the passenger side of her Toyota. She's <laughs> yelling and screaming at me and, and I stop and, and my wife is yelling and screaming at me. You're an idiot. This <laughs> and that. She wasn't my wife at the time, just my girlfriend. But uh, I told the lady, you know, at this time, my dad had his shop in town. And we were known as the number one body shop in town. And I told her, I said, I can fix it. I'll fix it. I gave her the business card for the shop. And I said, if you want me to, she says, no, this is a brand new Toyota. I'm taking it back to Toyota to fix it. Okay, just let me know what I owe you and you know, I'll pay for it. No problem. And uh, about three hours later, she calls me and she says, I took my car to Toyota, but I showed them your business card and they said that you could fix it better than we could. <laughs> so I got the job and I fixed it. <laughs> well, then she wasn't managed anymore. It was no. all good. So. No, no, it was fine. I actually gave her 
my car to drive while I fixed hers. Oh, that's I said, here, I don't want you to be without a car. Go ahead and take it. <laughs> I did that with my sister when, you know, I used to drive that San Marcos Pass. And, you know, I told you how I used to drift. And when I'd see headlights, I'd go to the outside and let a car pass and drift back in. I did that a couple times, and that other car happened to be a cop. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see them until they get around the corner. So I would just pull over, and then they would turn around, and I got my tickets. But I lost my license twice. And one time, I had a 78 Honda Civic that I was driving when I lost my license once. And I gave it to my sister to drive while I was without a license for six months. And I remember when uh, I called my sister up, and I said, hey, I need my car back. I'm getting my license back. So she comes over to my parents' house with my car, and I, I would happen to be out front working on my dad's car as she pulls up. And this thing is making an awful noise, just this grinding, <laughs> horrible noise. And I turn, and I see her pull up, and I'm like, what the heck is that? And I walk out over there, and I look in there, and there's about 10 inches of McDonald's and Taco Bell papers in the bottom of the car. <sighs> and just, it's filthy dirty. And she's just shutting it off, and then she shuts it off, and it does the <laughs> And she hands me the keys, and I go, you know what? Just keep it. <laughs> and I hand her the keys back, and it's what she said next that I will never forget to this day. She says, well, if I knew you were going to give it to me, I would have taken better care of it. <laughs> oh. I'm like, really? I'm Memo not to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had in, in high school, I had had about 50 different cars because working in my dad's body shop, when a totaled car would come in, sometimes the car just wasn't worth much, but the damage isn't that bad. And I would buy those cars and then I would customize them and sell them. And that Honda just happened to be one of those cars that I hadn't gotten around to fixing it up, but I was, I was just driving it at the time. So I just gave it to my sister. I think I only paid maybe 200 bucks for it. <laughs> so, but it but it had been wrecked and it was a total because it was probably blue book on that car was probably six hundred dollars at the time yeah i miss i miss those days because uh like i mean i grew up basically in a dealership so for me my first cars were always like the 75 dollar 250 dollar cars because we could yeah, buy they cars were awesome. we could buy cars for like 50 bucks over what the dealership had into them when they'd come in if they didn't want to put them on the lot Right. So, man, stuff would come in, and especially when I worked, you know, I was just starting out and I was a detail pup, you'd see everything get parked back there. So I'd be running back there with these hold tags all the time, and I was like, yeah, I'm getting that one. I'm going to buy this one. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. And, yeah, I had a string of, like, really just, you know, nondescript, you know, the kind of cars you don't want to talk about, but they were great because I had nothing into them. And you'd drive these cars and somebody's like, what do you want for that car? Because, you know, we'd pull them in sometimes on the weekend and do, you know, goofy crap like cut the coils, you know, get them a little bit lower, make yep. them look cool. All of a sudden that little Sunbird you bought for 200 bucks just became a $1,500 car. Exactly. Yep. Isn't that funny? Well, I would, we'd have these customers come in and they'd be bummed that their car's not totaled because they really don't want to keep it. There's so much damage that they don't, they don't want the car back. And maybe it was a 76, uh, you know, Chevy Camaro that blue book on it was probably maybe if it was perfect, blue book was like $1,800 at the time. And this is maybe, maybe the car is only five, six years old and the damage on it is about $1,800. Mm -hmm. 
and or, or sixteen hundred dollars and the car's worth eighteen hundred dollars so i'd tell the customer i'll give you two hundred bucks and i'll sign the uh the insurance check over to you and they say <laughs> oh okay because they they didn't want the car back and yeah i'd be in at two hundred bucks two weeks worth of work and i'd sell it for thirty two hundred dollars because i just <laughs> made it look cool nice so, so i did a ton of those in high school and and while i was at city college too those so, were the best those yeah, i mean those those were great days I mean, just My kind mom of bartering things about... too. Like I, I learned how to yeah. barter. You know, I, I like, hey, you guys need a a t-shirt designed or a logo, so you work these deals out with a guy who you know does window tinting, or the wheel guy who'd come through. Ah, I miss those days. Or yeah. the pizza guy, which we discussed a couple weeks ago, which <laughs> we, we never a pizza had. Pizza guy. Pizza guy. <laughs> yeah. I yep. think yeah. You I remember the dream team. You need a pizza guy. My and mom would call me at three guy. or four in the morning. When are you getting home? Because I had school the next day. Um, <laughs> I'll be home soon. And what it would generally would happen is I would fall asleep in the car while I was working on it. And then at uh, 7 o'clock, which is when the painters would get to the shop, they would roll the door open. That would, that would wake me up. I'd run to my truck, fly home, take a quick shower, and I'd make it to school by 8. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it took. Yeah. So, I didn't sleep much as a kid. You don't sleep much now. I sleep more now than I ever used to. Overhauling <laughs> really kicked my tail. Oh, especially bet. third season was the worst. We did 29 cars in nine months. Wow. So that was an average of 24 days a month that we were working. And on overhauling, when we were doing them in the eight days, I generally, maybe I would take two naps. I would nap when the car was in the paint shop. And sometimes I'd find another nap, but usually just while the car was in the booth and whoever was painting it was painting it, I would catch some sleep. Most of the time it was in uh, Mitch Lanzini's office while he was in the booth painting the car. But I would do most of those eight days with zero sleep. So there was basically almost 24 days a month that I wasn't sleeping. Oh my gosh. And no home time, no... No. Wow. No, I, I basically was living at the shop eight days straight to get those cars done in that time frame. Well, wait a second. It only took an hour to build this <laughs> yeah. car. Yeah. Yeah, I, I watched nope. every episode. We did. We filmed the first episode. We had 465 <laughs> hours of film that we oh had to edit down. Gosh. Edit that down to get basically about 35 minutes of content to fulfill one hour show because you have all the you know, when they come back from a commercial break, you got to do a catch up. So there's about 14 minutes of time that is all rerun. You're seeing this footage several times. So if somebody comes into the middle of the show after a commercial, they can get caught up before they actually start showing new content. So it's interesting how all that editing works for television. And I, I do want to say uh, having to work as an artist during those years, uh, you ruined it for a lot of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You can I, do I, that I, sketch in 30 seconds. That's exactly, that's what wrecked it for us. It was like, well, what do you mean it costs this much to do it? Well, I'm going to have this many hours into it. Well, I watch TV and Chip does these in four minutes. And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> and talks all the way through and tells us what he's doing. Like, now, maybe. when the insider was there and I would do the rough sketch. <laughs> Those would generally take me about 10 to 15 minutes to do two or three rough sketches. 
mm-hmm. the final, I usually spent between 45 minutes and an hour and a half to do the final rendering. Wait, wait, yeah. can, you, can you rephrase that as, and I'd spend about a week to a week and a half on the final rendering. That would be so much better than the edit. Generally, 40 minutes to an hour and a half is all I wanted to spend on it because I wanted to get back to the build. Yeah, well, you didn't have time for so. No. Okay, we're no, going to try that one more a time. A week I learned to three weeks. Do you, know who, <laughs> do you know who Mark Sternberger is? The illustrator? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Well, I apprenticed with, with Mark for three and a half years and absolutely loved every minute that I worked with him. And it was so tight. We would spend about 16 to 18 hours on those renderings once we had the line drawing done, just doing the rendering. And it was so tight that you have to learn how to draw that tight to be able to loosen up and work fast. And it was all the work that I did with Mark that allows me to be able to sketch as quick as I can. Mm. So are you available for sketches? I mean, if people contact you or you're just so busy doing customer build work that you don't do sketches for people at this point? I Yeah, we actually stopped. You know, we just kept raising the price of what it costs to do a sketch. Then we were, we were quoting people ten grand to do a sketch. And they said, okay. And, <laughs> and I wouldn't 45 be able to minutes get to, to an hour and a half later. <laughs> a year later, I'm feeling so guilty that I haven't done it that now I'm saying – don't worry about paying me. Just take the drawing. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to do that anymore, so we just cut it out that I only do renderings for the show and for the cars that we build here at the shop. Nice. And sometimes awesome. birthday gifts. <laughs> <laughs> no, my birthday was last Personal week. Friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Carson, Carson's sitting in here, and he's just nodding and he giving got a one. thumbs up. So, yeah, he's, <laughs> he, he obviously helped. And Carson is no slouch with a marker either, so don't. No, no Carson's no, very, very talented. Carson is definitely not a slouch. I was talking to him today about that, and I said, man, I said, I was looking over your marker work, and it was funny because, Brad, you and I talked about that, and I, the guy, the guy's way too humble. This is like, man, you have Carson and Chip in the same room right now. Is there, Brad, is it warmer there? <laughs> I'm ruining the whole vibe. I'm sucking the heat out of the room. So yeah, Brad has the same talent. <laughs> yeah, he, he does. Is tremendously talented. So yes. I, so let me let me ask you this. I don't want to take too much more of your time because we man we've commented the hell out of your evening. But you had mentioned all the hours that you were spending on overhauling, and obviously all the hours that you spent. I mean, hell, if you put twenty two thousand hours into a car. You're a working fool, man. (laughs) All I have to say is, okay, you, and I I share this affliction. So my my big question for anybody else out there who might, you know, of our seven listeners or so, um, as far as being a workaholic like that, at what point do you, do you know that it's time to pull the plug? I mean, do you wait for the physical crash or are you in tune with it now to a point where you just know you have to pull that plug. Um, when it's what you want it to be is when you're done. That's when you pull the plug. But as far as hours, you know, it's funny. When we did the uh, the Speedbird build that we were talking about earlier, I started that build. Originally, I was supposed to get the car in March, and we are going to build it for the SEMA show, which was the end of October. October 28th is when we had to leave the shop to get to the show, or the show was starting on October 28th. And I didn't get the car until September 12th. 
Oh, oh, I remember oh, that date. Oh, I remember the date because it was my sister's birthday, Amy, who passed away. She was born on September 12th, and I, I just remember that was the day that the car showed up, and I had six weeks to get it done. Just I was a, almost just under seven weeks, and what I started doing when that car came in is I was working 40 hours straight, and then I'd sleep for eight, and then I'd work 40, and then I'd sleep for eight, and I did six weeks straight of that time of just working 40, sleep eight, 40, sleep eight, 40, and the last six days with zero sleep. And I remember in, during the last six days, I had a painter here from Europe that was painting a bike here in the shop that needed to get done. And I remember him coming over and asking me a question, and I'm standing there, and I fell asleep standing up, and I woke up falling over. And I caught myself, and I turned to him, and it's Ray Hill. He's a, a tremendous artist and painter. And I remember I stopped, and I grabbed Ray by the shoulders, and I said, look, I said, I can't focus on that project right now. You're going to have to use your best judgment. Treat it as if it were your own and do what you need to do. I can't focus on that. But then I could turn around and go back to the car and I'm wide awake and focused and I can continue working on it. And it's the same way if my wife tries to talk to me, I'll fall asleep while she's talking to me <laughs> about something that has nothing to do with the project. But I have ADHD and I can hyper-focus on one thing and I'm wide awake until I'm done with it. But put anything else in there and I'll fall asleep in the middle of it. So Carson just fell over. <laughs> oh no! Trying to avoid the camera, <laughs> but I've been that way. I have been that way all my life. I could, you know, even as a kid, my mom would say, you know, lights out. So she didn't want the lights on in the room. And what I would do is I would throw my blankets over my head, and I'd have my sketchbook underneath and a flashlight. I would turn the flashlight on, and I would draw all night long until it was time to go to school. I didn't need to sleep because I just focus on my drawings. Now I'd fall asleep in class listening to the teacher talk about, you know, three plus three equals eighteen. I don't think that's right. But <laughs> well, that's a common core. That's correct. Yeah, the way it works. <laughs> yeah. Today. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean I always hyper focused on what I was interested in, and I can do that today when I'm working on something here in the shop. You know, my attention is on that. I hate to drive home. You know, even when I finish a project. I may have gone three or four days without any sleep, and it's time to drive home. I don't have the energy to drive home, but I could go back out and start working. So I'll just go in the office, and I've got a couch in there. I'll fall asleep and sleep for a couple hours before I get up and then drive home. But when we finished the Speedbird project, we loaded it in the trailer. I lost 27 pounds on that build. We loaded it in the trailer, and I needed to drive home to take a shower to drive to Vegas. And what I did is I, I left the shop here. It was 6 o'clock in the morning, and I would get to a red light. I'd put the truck in park, and I would fall asleep. And when the light turned green, everybody behind me would start honking, and I'd put it back in drive. <laughs> and that's how I got home. And I took a shower, needed to get to Vegas. I had a friend of mine that helped on the build, uh, uh, Tim Fitzpatrick, who's a clay modeler, and his best friend Donnie were, were both in the truck following my wife and I, I got on the freeway and when I was in Corona, I fell asleep behind the wheel, woke up about three times within a mile and I had my cell phone and I called Tim who's driving behind me and I said, can Donnie drive this truck to Vegas? I'm not going to make it. I'm falling asleep here. 
and my wife was all ticked off to me at me because I was falling asleep, and she wasn't going to drive a truck hauling a trailer. So uh, Donnie said he would drive. He got in the truck, he drove, and I fell asleep in the back seat, and we got to Vegas on time. But we made it with about five minutes to spare to get that car into the show. Oh. Crazy. But, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's just hyper-focused on the project that I'm on. I, I, I've always had that where I can do that. But I'm getting older now, and I don't like to do it. I sleep yeah. more now. Like I was telling you earlier, I sleep more now than I ever used to. I'll, I'll fall asleep on the couch just watching. You know, I like to sit on the couch and watch TV with my wife now. <laughs> and we'll go in there. And if it's you know, a show that I have no interest in, but I just want to be there with my wife. <laughs> I'm asleep in five minutes. The Hallmark Channel, guys. <laughs> I feel bad because I went to see a movie, and uh, my, my girlfriend at one point I, I noticed I was dozing off, and I thought I was catching myself. I'm thinking I'm being all smooth. We're sitting in the theater, and it's a packed theater. And at one point, it was funny because I just looked at it, and I, I thought in my head, I swear I heard myself snoring. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I just, I, I kind of lean over and I said, Hey, um, I said, you, you let me know if I was snoring, wouldn't you? And she goes, Oh yeah, of course I'll let you know if you're snoring. And we get done with the movie and we're walking out and she's just kind of laughing. And I said, what? She says, I'm just wondering what the lady next to you was thinking. I said, why? She says, your head is leaned back. You're snoring. <laughs> she goes, and I'm poking you trying to wake you up. I think, yeah, maybe it's time to cut the work hours down just a little bit now and then. I've been there too in the movie theater like that. Yep. It's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here, but I'm not here. You yes, know? I'm going to watch this. It's about being physically close during this. <laughs> it's funny because yeah. when we were all growing up, we always used to laugh at dad would always fall asleep in front of the TV and we'd all chuckle and laugh, but now we're dad. One year, <laughs> one year at SEMA, uh, you know, my wife, I promised her that we would go to dinner. We were going to go to a restaurant and have dinner. And we just had this one event that we had to attend because of one of my sponsors was putting it on. So we were going to go to this event and then go to dinner. And I got to that event, and then it became a photos and uh, autograph session. And by the time we got out of there, it was after 11 o'clock at night. And my wife says something to me about going to dinner. I said, let's just go to bed. And the next thing I know is I've got a shoe flying at my head. <laughs> like, ah, all right, we're going to dinner. <laughs> okay, I got I got one last question to ask. This, this is me kind of because uh, it's not everybody's going to know this about you, and it's something again we've talked about. I'm, we talked a lot about a lot of stuff going to Disneyland. That was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, your name, your your first day at kindergarten. Yes. Can we can we talk about your first day in sure. kindergarten before we before we end this thing? And I had talked about Brian. I said. I want to talk about his first day at kindergarten. He, he learned something about himself. He did not know. And, uh, well, I'll tell you exactly how it went. So let's, 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 I'll just let you tell this. I get to my first day of kindergarten and the teacher calls roll. And at the end of roll call, she says, is there anybody here that I didn't call your name? And I raised my hand. She says, what's your name? And I said, Chipper, because I was named Chipper before I was given my legal name. She says, what's your last name? And I said, Foose. And she says, Oh, you're Douglas. And I said, no, I'm not. And what had happened is I was born in the hospital and we stayed in the hospital for four days. And the minute that I was born, when my mom first saw me, she said that 
I had these huge puffy cheeks and looked like a chipmunk. And she called me chipper from the minute she saw me. Well, it was day four that we were leaving the hospital and the nurse came in and said, uh, you haven't put a name in the, in the, on the birth certificate yet. And my dad had a good friend named Douglas and he wrote Douglas, wanted me to be a Douglas. So he wrote Douglas on my birth certificate. When I got home, my mom introduced me to my older sister as Chipper. So the only name I had ever heard was Chipper. <laughs> so when I went to kindergarten and the teacher told me my name was Douglas, I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I got home and I told my mom, I said, the teacher said my name was Douglas. And she says, Oh, yes, it is. Your oh, legal oh, name is Douglas, but you have a nickname, and it's Chipper. <laughs> oh, yeah, that Douglas thing. See, yeah. this was this was part of the funny thing is when we're, when we're doing the Disney thing is there's four guys in this pickup truck. <laughs> Only one of us actually had the name that matched his driver's license, <laughs> and that was Dennis Redcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> because my first name is not Brad. Those who know me know my first name is not Brad. Obviously, Chip's name is not Chip. And then Jeff had changed his last name because he just thought it would be a better pinstriping name. So the guy takes all our driver's license, comes back and goes, okay, we got a problem. <laughs> Only one of you actually measures your driver's license. He came out and saved us. <laughs> that guy was not happy at all that, you know, he's got this name listed and nobody's off this name that's on the list. It's, just, See, it's not matching the license. We had to go to a different parking lot first and park all of our cars and then get in one car because they would only allow one car to go through security gate. It was, so we were all in the car at the same time. Dry. That, yeah. that, I would Styles. love to go over Jeff the stories Styles. of that at some point, too, with you guys. Because I know, Brad, we, we've done it with you. But just to talk about it, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a dream team and a half. You guys all together basically working on Cars Land. Holy crap. I mean... It was it was definitely one of my favorite experiences. I I will it, it put that in, in my in my yeah in my my list of things I've done. That was Disney is a great group to work with. Disney and Pixar both Man. had a lot of fun with their projects. In uh, in the interest of not yeah, commandeering the guy's entire night, because I would like Chip to get uh, as much, or I'm sorry, Douglas to get as much sleep as he needs. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'll fall asleep on you when it gets to that point. <laughs> How great! You know, the, there, there's a big thing on YouTube with these people who like whisper into the microphone. What is that? A A S M R or whatever that is. Asking me to whisper something to you? Get out! <laughs> That'd be awesome because Chip could do that, or he, we could just have like, and here is an hour and a half of Chip snoring for your entertainment. <laughs> It's like the white noise. It's like, what do you listen to to relax? I listen to Chip snoring. Does my the... snoring really sound like a car? <laughs> <laughs> we could market my wife this. Says I, my wife says I snore, and I've never heard me snore, so I think she's full of crap. Oh, I've heard me snore many, many times because it wakes me up. So, yeah. <laughs> when I snore, it's a little tiny, like every once in a while, I go like that, and it'll wake my wife up, and she's ticked. Now, when I would tell my wife that she does snore, she would say, I do not snore. So one night, she's snoring away in bed, and I pick up the phone, and I dial the shop, knowing that there's an answering machine here at the shop. <laughs> so the answering machine answers, and I just put the phone next to my wife, and you hear, 
So I let her, I let her do that for about a, a good solid minute. And then I grabbed the phone and I said, to everybody at the shop, that's Lynn snoring. And I hung up. And I didn't say a word to anybody. But Lynn is also, I've got a receptionist named Lynn, and right. Lynn is my wife. So when Lynn gets into the office and she's playing all the messages, she laughed and she put her over the PA so everybody could hear it. <laughs> and then when my wife gets his office, she comes into the shop in the afternoon. Then they played it for her, and oh, I will never live that oh, one down. you were in so <laughs> much trouble. That's awesome, though. But, yep. We won. One for the guys. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I lost the battle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, I I can't begin to say thank you enough for your time and and for you know for being here with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank yeah, you, Chip. Yeah, great time. Keep up the great work and all the design work. Well, thank and hey and hey, you too. Thank you. That's why. <laughs> From the bottom of my heart, though, sincerely, that means everything to me. And um, you know, I I know we probably can't say much about it. We've got some big stuff going together uh, with our whole group for SEMA. And cool. that'll be a fun thing. Really looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, it is just, though, this is this is definitely, it, this has been an awesome experience for us. I've enjoyed it as well. And uh, is Carson okay after his fall over there? It wasn't his. Carson's uh, ready to fall asleep. He's, he's <laughs> not enough over here. <laughs> well, he's, he's already got his slippers on, Yeah, right? he's okay. He saved himself, but he almost took out he's the good. water bottles on the front door. So it was it was good. <laughs> but on a side note, I have it on film. So I'll uh, I'll show the highlight reel later. <laughs> yes. on. Oh, nice. <laughs> sure, be YouTube famous. <laughs> He's going to do it again, but he's going to shove the camera. The That's top. right, as it goes down. Let's do that in slow motion. <laughs> it sounds just like your voice. It's perfect. Wow. <laughs> Boo. Whatever. So. What? <laughs> well, thank you, guys. Thank yes, you. Chip, thank, thank you, you so much. My pleasure. Hopefully. See you at SEMA. Definitely. Looking yeah. forward to it. You'll definitely see us at SEMA. Cool. All right, guys. Well, hey, by far, it, I don't like using the word, but the, an epic episode 20. Uh, huge thanks to, uh, to Chip Foos for joining us here. Um, man, big thanks to you guys for playing along as always. My yeah. pleasure. We talked about some odd, uh, different subjects that I normally that don't talk about. That was the whole idea. Yeah. Very cool. And thank you thank for you sharing guys. that. I, that's we we don't want to do the typical show. I never I mean don't get me wrong, I want to know what your favorite pasta dish is and and I'd like to know stuff like well, you know what your favorite color is. But I can me, tell you what it was at Art Center and I am going to share this little bit of information because I didn't have any money at Art Center, so I bought top ramen hmm. and prego spaghetti sauce. So I did the top ramen and I put that. So I had the poor man spaghetti is what I lived on at Art Center. And fast too. <laughs> Somebody yeah. else who does was, that. And you know what's not half bad either? It's not. Ramen with uh, that morel chili in the can. Oh, that, yeah, that would be good too. That wasn't half yeah. bad. I, I did I did a lot of that, which explains a lot of my physique these days. You know, you don't, a body like this just doesn't happen overnight. This is <laughs> you gotta work at it. It costs money, man. <laughs> Look at Eric. Eric spent a lot life. of money. <laughs> yeah, it's all in my belly. <laughs> Perfect. But all thank right. you for that. I appreciate you. You know, you you sharing like you did, and 
Man, um, yeah, we're going to get stuff on the uh, the website. And with your okay, I'd, I'd like to post a link to um, the uh, the car show and uh, the cause for progeria. I'd like to get oh, great. that information Thank you. out there for our people. Progeria Research Foundation. Yep. And if anybody's in the uh, Georgia area, Brazelton, Georgia, third weekend of September at year one, we do the car show. Fantastic. Outstanding. We will make a point to uh, to, to definitely put that up on the show notes. And, uh, you know, if anybody needs any more information, by all means, you can hit us, you know, on the site, uh, on Facebook, any place like that, and we'll, we'll get you the information you need. So, hey. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, should should we bug you for one of those cool radio intro things? Like they do what do you want me to say? Like when you do a radio blurb. Do you ever do those, like a morning show where they're like, hey, welcome to the Wacky Morning Show? And, you know. <laughs> I say that to my wife every morning. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't appreciate it because she was sound asleep and I just woke her. <laughs> the what do you horn. want? That's awesome. You ready? I am set. Hey, I'm Chip Foose, and you're listening to the Round Six Podcast. Well, happy editing. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, it's going to be good. We're not going to edit anything. We're just going to let this fly. <laughs> yeah, okay. Sure. So, right. All right, guys. This is the slowest outro I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> well, I haven't started. I, I think we've been working on this for about song 20 yet. minutes now. I, I really wanted to ask him about that Pontiac Aztec that he's bringing to SEMA, oh, but I figured, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. I know it's secret. Come on. Oh, you, you almost have to. It's a, it's a neo. I wanted to do well, one of those you know, in the worst well, way. Well, with your time with Clinet, I knew that you were working on this Pontiac Aztec. It was the Az Caliber, and we were hoping uh, you'd tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have drawings. <laughs> it's a dual cowl, right? I it's a dual cowl. I'll have them when I see you. Good or bad. A dual cow, as caliper. <laughs> yep. And it's towing a Yugo. Oh, right. Ooh. <laughs> For when you get to those places that you don't want to take the yeah, dual cow. Oh, God. Speaking of putting it in park, hey, that's the greatest uh, segue we've had. For <laughs> um, Go. It gets even better. Well, hey, thank you for listening. Shoved it in park. Now turn off the key. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're just going to end with the end. No, it's thank you very much for listening. Um, Again, thanks to our our, our guest, (laughs) Jeff. (laughs) Thanks again to our guest, and thank you for listening. As always, I'm Brian. I'm still Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Eric. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening. And be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on youtube.com. Does this mean we're done? See, my imagination, I was picturing all all of you guys in some studio somewhere, and Brad's just the roaming reporter. No, I just... Keep picturing that. That's awesome. Keep that that thought. That's how it works. It's it's, it's an amazing studio. It's a big studio place. You've probably got secretaries bringing you coffee and everything else, and they've got slippers on so you don't hear them walking past you. 
like looks like watching a sports center or something. All sitting at the really mm-hmm. cool desks and yep. yeah, lights. Yeah, that's what I was imagining. All all sitting in Eames chairs. We, we, we only hire mutes. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> awesome. You guys are lucky. Hairless mutes. It's even better because we can't risk any sound. Perfect. And then we don't get any hair in our coffee either. And you have a uh, five-star restaurant in the room next to you. Yes. Some chef sure. that's cooking things up for you. Yep. I'm going to go to Taco Bell on my way home. I want to see you drift for Taco Bell. And I'll have it finished before I get out of the driveway of Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs>